0: So there are a few things in this world that are more awkward than watching someone pretend to be something that they're not. Watching someone be a poser. You may grow up with the word poser, like few insults were as strong as, hey bro, you're a poser. So I I, I did youth group for a lot of years, and as you might imagine, if you can remember back to your high school years, there's a lot of um, being a poser in high school. We're trying as hard as we can to get people to to value us and, and to quote unquote fit in. But um, doing youth ministry, there was a few kids that just kind of were shining stars when it came to the idea of, hey, man, I am a really, really, really bad poser. And uh, there was one kid in particular that right when we moved out to this valley, he was in our youth group and he was one of the nicest, kindest kids that you've ever met. But he, he was very, very like obvious about what he was trying to portray. When I first came out here, this um, like, pasty white, freckle-faced kid, just was convinced he was a thug. Born and raised in the mean streets of Temecula, he was like, I am gangster. I listened to the gangster music. I dressed with the, just, I, I mean, and I remember just thinking, oh dear. I mean, i just come from Long Beach. I, I was a gangster, not really. But being in Long Beach, I was a lot more thug than he was. And I remember just thinking like, dude, you don't even know. I mean, you look at, look, okay, anyway. But he, it was like him trying. There was some group at his school that he thought maybe by dressing this way, they'd say, you look good. The next year, it was like someone flipped the switch. He went straight from like thuggish ruggish to like straight up Rastafarian, like. I don't know how his parents afforded the budget change, or the, the, the budget of the wardrobe change, but he, he did it. The next year, he went from that to like full-on surfer guy, like skateboarder guy. I mean, it was like six different things throughout the seven or eight years I knew him that this guy just shifted into. And it was so incredibly awkward. Hypocrisy can be just really, really hard to watch. And, and today, we're gonna be talking about the wonderfully awkward topic that we as Christians may quite possibly struggle with hypocrisy. How many of you guys have ever heard people say, Christians, they're all a bunch of hypocrites? How many of you guys can't hear? (laughs) If you you spend any time listening to the people that that like to bash the church, it is is a popular thing to say that Christians are hypocrites. And I know that many of them build a little straw man argument and they see some caricature of some hate-filled Christian on TV and they say, that's all Christians and that's not fair. But I I, I want to wrestle with whether or not we as the church can take some some ownership of the fact that we're hypocrites. Here is the definition that I would like to work with today. The idea of hypocrisy meaning that we are professing or pretending to be what we're not. Uh, This word to me, there's a lot of different definitions of it, but this one gets closest to the most kind of the, the original content, which was a Greek word, which was the word uh, hypocrites, I believe. I'm trying to sound as Greek as I can, but I'm going to go with hypocrites, and it's a Greek word which means an actor or a stage player, which, which honestly was, was basically saying one who wears a mask. Because back then, actors would wear masks like this to, to show an emotion or to play a certain character. This is how they took on that role. It was really, really intense, serious acting. Very lazy acting, if you ask me. It's like Come on, that's not that hard to make that face, but apparently they, they weren't that good and they said, listen, this way people will know that we are either shocked, hungry, or yawning. And that's what the actor would wear and that was how they would say, this is what I'm feeling. And so the, the, that word became so common that they would actually take that word and, and it, they would apply it to anyone who was wearing a figurative or metaphorical mask and pretending to be someone or something that they were not. And in the sense of this idea right here, I want you to know, this is kind of the spoiler here, I do believe that we as Christians, are guilty of this. I believe that we, as members of the Christian church, are guilty of wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something that we are not. We we pretend to have it all together when really we don't. We pretend like um, like we are just really, really holy or really, really spiritual when really we are not as holy as we want people to think we are. If you're in this room and you're like, "That's it. I'm tired of this Christian bashing. I'm out of here." We lock the door so you can't leave anyway. But but I will tell you this, I need you to know that when I say that Christians struggle with hypocrisy, um, I, I wanna say this statement right afterwards, and that is the idea that everyone struggles with hypocrisy. If you wanna take the phrase, the church struggles tremendously with hypocrisy, you, should, you could also take that same phrase and say, um, your workplace struggles tremendously with hypocrisy. Your children's school tr- uh, struggles tremendously with hypocrisy. Your gym, your coffee shop, your, your circle of friends, your neighborhood, we all struggle tremendously with hypocrisy. There's a verse that says uh, that wherever two or more are gathered there, I will be amongst them. It's Jesus talking about some really cool spiritual stuff. But I would take that same intro and I would say, wherever two or more are gathered, you can bet your bottom dollar there's going to be some hip, hypocrisy going on there. There's going to be people putting on a mask, trying to project themselves as something other than whatever they are. And so the idea that everyone struggles with it, the idea that you struggle with it, I struggle with it, the people out there struggle with it, we all struggle with it. I'm not saying that to say, hey, since we all struggle with it, let's just move on, it's not a big deal. We'll kind of just write it down to something that we all struggle with and, you know, just not even deal with it. We can't do that. We really, really cannot do that. As Christians, we need to deal with this issue. Obviously, it would be ideal if everyone within, you know, just whatever social circle you're in, you're in wrestled with the idea of how we can improve and be less hypocritical. Um, but when it comes to the church, we need to deal with it because there's a lot of people out there that do not want to set foot in this building because of this issue. Uh, again, whether it's, it's completely founded or fair for them to, to think that we are superstars when it comes to hypocrisy, the fact is they think it and it's something that if we can deal with it, we could, we could make a really, really, really big difference. But more importantly than what other people think, we should look at what Jesus thought of hypocrisy, and Jesus hated it. Jesus just outright opposed it. Some of his strongest words were reserved for hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, this is one of those passages where you're wondering how much coffee Jesus had the morning of this, because he gets really worked up. Um, About seven times in this passage, he says this, he starts with this opening phrase, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites.'" And this specific one, he calls out what I would say is very much like that, uh, that original Greek word of wearing a mask, putting up a front, being a poser. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be, ke- will be clean. So... If you haven't noticed these yet, I went into Scott's office this morning and stole some of his super valuable Starbucks cups. And I went outside and I rubbed dirt on the outside of this one. It's very dirty, as you can see. But on the inside of this one, I rubbed dirt. And I even went out and grabbed, like, some potting soil. I think there's actually a a rock in there, like a real rock. I don't know if you can hear this. But um, the idea that Jesus is saying is he's saying, "Um, listen up, bozos. You have a dirty cup and you are choosing, rather than, than taking your effort to clean the inside where the water actually goes... A little dirty lip, but other than that, it's good. He's saying, rather than than choosing to prioritize what's inside, you are all about making sure the outside looks good because that's what other people see. And so what he's trying to say, can you see how ridiculously foolish, I mean, you guys are literally, you're more concerned with looking good than what actually is inside. Some of you guys, most of you guys are like, okay, okay, he's a, he's a children's pastor. That increases the odds like double. Okay, it's probably like 70-30. Like I haven't done it yet today, but I'm not gonna do it right now either. Um, that's gross. It's disgusting. And it's just, it really is nasty. And it's a great metaphor. Jesus is saying, really, you, you would rather look good and choke down muddy water, metaphorically speaking, than actually do the hard work that is cleaning the inside. Yeah. You would rather look it on the outside than actually have it sorted out where it matters or start sorting it out where it matters. And so, I mean, that is a very, very clear, very condemning call. But again, um, the issue of hypocrisy is something that we have to wrestle with. Um, This morning, I was kind of struck with this idea that, you know, people say sometimes, well, in order to attack this problem, we need to understand this problem. And that's kind of where I want to spend the next several minutes, is is trying as best we can to understand what it is about hypocrisy that is so hard for us to not fall into. What is it about this thing that makes, it's a universal struggle for mankind. Why? There's a, a kind of a, what I would call the root cause of hypocrisy. And that is this, is that there is something deep within us as human beings that believes other people will like us more will value us more, will love us more, will be more accepted if we appear more blank than we really are. And again, I need to stress, this is not why Christians are hypocritical. This is why human beings wear masks. There's something within us that believes that if other people think that we are something, they'll like us more. If people think that we are, you know, friendlier than we actually are, then maybe they'll like us more. People think that we're more intelligent than we actually are, or that we, we are uh, more interesting than we actually are, or maybe that we're more interested in them than we actually are. We will put on all sorts of masks for that simple goal. The hope, the wish, the dream that maybe, just maybe, you will think that I'm better than I am, and you'll like me. And yes, Christians, this is a social setting. This is a group of people, and whenever you have a group of people, There's the temptation to try to impress them. And oftentimes Christians believe the most impressive thing you can do or the best way to get other Christians to like them, and sometimes we even think that people outside of the church this will work, is if we act holier than we actually are. We act more spiritual than we actually are. That is the struggle. That is the thing that we are just, just, it has its hooks in us. I was wrestling with this this morning and I was thinking that, 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 potential promise, that, that, that hope that maybe, just maybe, I can wear a mask and you will like me more, that idea is, is probably one of the single most irresistible forces in all of our, like, instinctual wiring. Since, since Adam and Eve fell, since the, the fall of man, man has been desperately trying to find value and acceptance from their peers, and they've been using whatever tools they possibly can to do that, oftentimes that tool is a mask. And so, yes, I, 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 it, was, it was really easy for me to see as a kid the hypocrisy that existed. I remember myself, I was a jock, I was, I was, I was never the ladies man jock, but I was just a jock, I was good at sports, but, I, but skateboarding became a big thing. And it, it was like, it was the thing. And I grew up in Long Beach. And I, I got to learn how to skate. And, and I, back then, if you could ollie, you were like in the club. You know, the kickflips didn't even exist as far as I know. People were doing hand plants. You guys remember those? Anyway, so I had to learn how to ollie. And I tried. And eventually, I did learn how to ollie. But long before I learned how to ollie, there was something I needed to do to make sure that people knew that I was in the club. And that was that I got these nice new shoes. My parents bought for me and I took them and I put them on my hand. I put my right shoe on my hand and I went over to a curb and I started scraping the outside of my shoe, like right there. Because when you ollie, you'd have to drag your foot up the board. And I needed people to see that I had an ollie hole in my shoe because I was cool when I was a skateboarder. And maybe, just maybe, but, oh bro, you skate. Yeah, skate bro, check out my ollie hole. <laughs> dumb, dumb, dum, 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 dumb. But it is what we do. It is something that we literally just can't resist. Why is it so tough for us to resist the possible hope that maybe, just maybe, if I can put on the right mask, you'll—I like you. There's a book that I read about 10, 15 years ago. It's called Searching for God Knows What, and this quote that I'm about to read is is the answer to that question. Why is it so hard for us to resist getting other people to to say that we— were valuable or likable. It says this, man was wired so that something outside himself told him who he was. He'd already talked about how God was that something, that we were intended to get our value and our self-worth from God. He says, and if God's presence was giving him that, giving him a feeling of fulfillment, then when that relationship was broken, he's talking about the fall, he said man, talking about Adam and Eve are, are us now, he said man would be pining or yearning for other people to tell him that he was good, that he was right, that he was okay with the world and eternally secure. God is the one that was intended to tell us who we are. Our identity is supposed to be established by the fact that we are loved by the most high God. But sin has separated us from God, and so now... Instead of finding it here, we all desperately search for it from a jury of our peers. That's why it's so incredibly difficult for us to resist the opportunity to put on a mask and maybe, just maybe, convince you I'm something other than I am so that your opinion of me will be higher than it should be. It's sad, it's tragic, but it is everywhere. Self-worth, acceptance, security, our identity, approval, all of it should come from here. But sin separated us from God, and now we look for it here. And as pure and wonderful as it was for Adam and Eve to have that with God, the, the, the tragedy of the fall is not just that sin entered the world, but it's the consequences of sin. And now you have people that, that, that are looking for what they should be getting here, here, and it turns into all sorts of just messy nastiness. Um, there's a, a, movie, there's a, a TV show. It's called Black Mirror. Have you guys seen it on Netflix, Black Mirror. It is like a modern-day Twilight Zone, and it is is—it is pretty right on the money a lot of times. It's also not PG-13. There's some language issues and some other stuff, but if you're looking for, like, social commentary that stings a little, this, these hypothetical kind of, like, what, what, are, what are we going to be like in a few years? A lot of the episodes wrestle with that. Um, th- there's one episode that come to, came to my mind, and it is the perfect like hypothetical, like a few years down the road of where we are headed as a culture with people that aren't finding our value here, but we're looking for it from our peers. And it's scary and it's eerie. And I forced my daughters to watch this with me last night because it's just so right on the money. Check this out. See you Lacey. (laughs) Oh, saw your boy in the fire hat just now. So cute. Yeah, he's really something. (laughs) eerie, Right. It's uh, obviously it's kind of a satirical, kind of hypothetical future, but it is the beauty of a good satire is that it, it's both preposterous and scary accurate. And, um, and that idea of just man, what if what if this encounter, what if what if me in this moment, what if I have the opportunity to just have you think a little bit better of me? And all throughout, I mean, that, I, like I said, my daughters and I watched it last night, and it was there's some language issues and some other stuff, but it is it is eerie. It is eerie how much it nails the fact that we are desperately trying to get other people to say, you're likable, you're good, you're valuable. And the tragedy is that it's just so empty when it really comes down to it. And I would also add that it's so far from what God desires for from us in our lives. Um, The intensity with which we go about the pursuit of other people telling us that we are valuable, I've tried to, 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 to help kids get it. I've tried to help myself understand it. I've tried to, to find ways to illustrate it. And, and there's a clip I wanna show. It's from a movie that came out like 25, 30 years ago. It was a, It's a Tom Cruise movie before everyone knew how crazy Tom Cruise was. Um, it's called Far and Away. Have I mean, you seen Far and Away? Really, really bad Irish accent by Tom Cruise. And, um, and at the end of the movie, there's a thing called a land rush, which is a real thing they did back like in the late 1800s where there was these giant, just chunks of land in Oklahoma that people, they would plot out different areas, and they would have a flag in each parcel of land, and they would line up horses and carriages and even weird old bikes that you'll see in this video, and they would fire off a cannon, and people would start just racing to get to this plot of land. And... and First of all, I love this clip because I think it is really a beautiful kind of cinematic kind of moment. But it also, it just speaks to the amount of focus and drive that we as human beings will put into the pursuit of a limited resource that we really, really, really want. So go ahead and check this out and, and see how it speaks to our issue. And also look at how little they care about their hats. So again, I, I just I think that's a cool scene from a movie, but it's people that are just, they, they, they know that there's something out there that everyone else wants, and, and they want it a lot. And so they go at it full bore. There is focus, there is intensity, there is this idea that, that I need that. One of the things they show later on in that clip is they show in the background, and, and they, they purposely made, because this is what really happened, is in the background you see people putting their flag in the ground, you hear a gunshot, and you see one of them fall dead, People would kill each other over this stuff. Um, I mean, there's, I don't know if you noticed, but no one at any point was tempted to turn back and get their hat or help the people whose carts fell over. It was, I'm, I'm way too busy trying to get what I need. And that is what you see run rampant in society, this, 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 this really honest struggle that we have because it's so hard to not get caught up in the pursuit of love and value and acceptance from a jury of our peers. So there's this thing that we struggle with. And one of the ways that it rears its head is, is hypocrisy. And how do, how do we deal with it when it's something that, like I said, it's one of the most irresistible things that we've faced throughout, like, humankind history? Uh, I tried to answer that question with kids with, with an illustration with a bunch of bags. This is a bag with a number four on it. Inside this bag, I don't know if you can hear it, there's like... 12 ping pong balls, maybe 10 ping pong balls. And, um, what I did was I took five, four other bags, one, two, three, four, five. And I put different numbers of ping pong balls in each bag. I think four always had the most and it was intentionally like noticeably more than the rest. And then number one was always the worst. I think number one had one. And what I did is I asked kids, I said, Hey, Hey kids, how many of you love licorice? Like love it. I'm not looking for mild fondness here, kids. I'm looking for, like, dream about licorice, kids. And pretty much every kid put their hands up, but I, I chose five lucky kids. And I said, all right, get up, kids, and I want you to go out into the hallway. And I went out into the hallway, and then one by one I'd call them in, and I would get down, and I'd whisper to them. I'd say, listen, in the bags, in the bags there are golf balls. And each one of those bags have different amounts of golf balls. Whatever bag you end up with, however many golf balls are in that bag, that's the licorice you get. All right, go get them. And I'd send them off there and I'd do that one by one as they came in and then they'd get on stage and they'd stand behind the bags and they'd try and look and I'd let kids ask, all right, what bag do you want? And they'd pick their numbers and inevitably the kid who got four, he's like, ooh. And I also put on the screen behind them so they couldn't see or in front of them so they couldn't see um, facing away from them what was in each bag. So the kids, when the kid chose four, like, ooh, he's got the good one, right? And then when the kid chose one, they're like, ah, this, you know, poor kid, whatever. So very quickly, it became clear to all the kids which bags had a lot, which bags kind of had a middle range, and which bag was like the one that nobody wanted. And so I would go to the kid with four who was smiling from ear to ear, and I'd say, let me ask you a question. Would you like to trade your bag um, with anyone? And he said, no, I'm good. I'm like, how how about number one over there? The kid was like crying in the corner. Do you want to trade with him? He's like, no, I'll pass. I'm gonna hold on to number four. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'm like, hey, number one, come here. How about you? Are you happy with your bag? He's like, no, I'm not happy with my bag. Would you like to switch with number four? I would. I would go over and grab number four and give it here, and I'd take number one and put it there, and it was really fun to watch the, the roles change. You know, this kid went from really happy to really sad. This kid was smiling from ear to ear, and then uh, very quickly thereafter, I'd say, hey, number five, uh, uh, would you like to change with anyone? Yeah, I want number four, sweet. Give me number four, here we go, over number five. And it was just like, like uh, several minutes of just fun torturing kids watching the bags, bags go back and forth. And, 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 and it, it was just crazy to watch how everyone got it Everyone saw what the game was, and everyone knew exactly how they were going to play it. And they all played exactly the same, except for two kids every service. Out of the five kids, two of the kids just were really acting strange. They they would, like, I remember I'd get to the end, and I'd, I'd make sure that one of these two kids had the number one bag, and and they all knew at this point one was the worst and four was the best, and I would say to them, this is the last one. I'm not switching anymore after this. I'm going to give you the choice. You have number one. Would you like to keep it, or would you like to take it from Billy? And they would look at number one, and they would say, I'll keep number one. Billy can keep number four. And people would be like, oh, this is sweet. This is wonderful. You guys are thinking, who are these kids? Who are their parents, and what's their secret, right? (laughs) Medication. That was what it was that did it. No. (laughs) Not really. What happened is that when these kids would come in one by one, I would tell three of them exactly what I told you that I would tell them, but two of them, I would say to them, I'd say, listen, those bags have different amounts of ping pong balls. They all think that whatever one they get is what they're gonna get, which is true, except for you, it's different. I'm telling you, you get more licorice than it is in any of those bags, no matter what. I will give it to you at the end, you have my word, I promise you, go and play the game. And they would go and they would play, and it was crazy to watch how quickly they got that it didn't really matter. It was crazy to watch how these kids would be generous. I didn't tell them, like, you have to be generous. They just were. Like, one of the kids, I I remember, like, he was the last one. I'm like, oh, okay, I forgot to tell the second one. And he came in, I'm like, oh this kid, he might not play along with this very well. But I told him anyway, and he did. He did it beautifully. Like, I thought he was the kind of kid, he'd be like, I'll just take it anyway. Just give it to me for fun. But he was like, no, let him keep it. I'm good. And the point I was trying to get at with this game with these kids was that we're all caught up playing this silly game, right? And, and there was a couple kids that, that, that played it totally different. Counterintuitively, it just didn't make any sense. But the, the secret for these two kids was that there was something outside of the game that they got, they understood, they wrapped their minds around, and it totally changed the way they played the game. Does that make sense? You, super deep, right? Like you're thinking, man, our kids are in such good hands. Anyway, so um, in all honesty, it is, it, is a, it is a game that I made up to try and illustrate this verse that has been just stuck in my brain. I, I don't know how I stumbled across this verse, but, but here, here's the verse, and I just can't stop wrestling with this verse and thinking about it. It says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? If I may, let me, let me translate that in a more modern way. Does the fact that you are loved by Jesus Christ, dearly and deeply loved. Does that have any real practical weight in your life? Does it affect the way that you play the game? It's a question. It's a question that he's asking. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together, together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? He's asking them, is there, is there something about the fact that you're loved by God that, that, that is really has significant real weight in your life. And then look what he does after that. He, he goes to kind of like, a, if, if there is, then, and basically what you're gonna see from here down is he said, then, then play the game differently. Stop playing the same game that everyone else does. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, by loving one another, by working together with one, one mind and one purpose. Think of how different this is than the land rush we just watched. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. He asks them a very, very deep philosophical question. Does does the fact that you're loved by God have any real practical weight in your lives? He says, if it does, then go play the game differently. And I don't think he's saying it to say, to to heap guilt on them and say, you should do this if you're a good Christian. I think what he's trying to say is, when we get this, the same way those kids got the the, the game, it'll change the way we play it. This this weird thing within us that that desperately desires for me to get other people to say, you're likable. It begins to be a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller force in my life because I'm, I'm more and more and more and more understanding just how awesome it is that I'm loved by God. That, to me, is, is the, the greatest hope we have to have any victory over this issue with hypocrisy. Not only that, that, here, here's what I would argue is the solution to all of Christianity or even mankind's interpersonal struggles, whether it be the, the need to be a fake poser, hypocrisy, whether it means selfishness or uh, a lack of generosity or, or humility, here's what I believe is the solution right here. This, if we could get this, if the church sincerely owned to the point of celebrating it, like we owned it, if we own the fact that we are all sinners who are loved by God and saved solely by his amazing grace it would be a huge step in the right direction when it comes to being more generous, being less self, self-centered, being more of a, like, a, a, I'm willing to work with others, put their needs above my own, and, and, of course, that all-important thing we've been wrestling with is the ability to be authentic. I mean, can you see how this frees me from the need to, to, to try and convince people that I'm something better than what I am? I'm, I'm already resting in the fact that, hey, I, I am broken, I am flawed, I'm a sinner, but I am lo- I'm dearly and deeply loved by the God of the universe, and I am saved solely by his amazing grace. That, if that begins to have the weight that it should have, it will totally, totally change the game. The same way that those little kids had this one simple truth that totally changed their perspective. I think Paul's getting at that when he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is, is that truth going to have the practical weight that it could have? And if it hasn't happened so far in your life, the solution is not to go out and try and be more generous or kind or whatever. The solution is to remind yourself again and again and again the fact that you are, a, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm flawed. I don't need to pretend to be perfect, but I'm loved by God and I'm saved solely by his amazing grace. Um, there is, uh, let me just wrap up with with why I think this helps so much with hypocrisy, two things. One, um, Kyle Preston, a friend of mine, has this thing that he, he does where he takes two signs and he says, the problem with Christianity is that our two signs don't go well together. There's a disconnect. And the first sign he, he has, somebody holds it up and it says, be perfect. And he says, this is the message of Christianity that so many people hear. You need to be perfect. And he goes, that's, that's one sign. And over here is the reality of the way Christians actually live, which is that they're not perfect. Right? And he says the problem, the reason so many people cry hypocrisy is because there's a disconnect between this and this, but what if, what if this went on this sign? What if the message we preached was that, hey, just like you, we're sinners, we have issues, we're broken, we're flawed, we're not perfect, but we are loved by God and we are saved by his grace. Amen. What if that was the message that we preached and then we had our bad days? Would they be anywhere near as repulsive to the outsiders, to the non-believers, I would argue by no way, shape, or form would they be. And I would also like to say that some of you hear this and you're thinking, okay, so yeah, we're no longer hypocrites, but look at what we've done. We basically are just gonna just rest in the fact that we're flawed. And where is that, where is that holy living that we know God wants from us? I would argue that this solves that as well. Remember that, that thing Jesus said, he said, you know, clean the inside of the cup and, and yeah, don't, whatever. He said, he said if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will will clean itself, which I have tried that so many times when I've done the dishes and it never works. But I do believe it works in the sense that Jesus meant it. I believe what Jesus, when it comes to cleaning the inside of our cup, we don't do it through trying to look better. We do it by reminding ourselves of just how amazingly awesome God is and the fact that we are loved for who we are. We're flawed, we're broken, but God loves us anyway. And if we just rest and trust in his love, um, there's a passage from John chapter 15. If you could go to the second verse there, the John 15, 5. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, earlier in the thing, it says, remain in my love. I think there's, there's a lot of similarities. If you remain in, you, in his love, if you, if you just rest and trust by inside, I, I know I'm loved by you, even though I'm not, that will begin to clean the inside of us. And slowly but surely, I do believe it'll clean our outsides. It says, if you remain in me, if you remain in my love and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will begin to look holier, which doesn't mean that you go to church enough times, give enough and... Whatever it means that you begin to be more loving. It means that when you walk into a room, the question that comes into your mind is not "Who can I get in here to make me feel better?" Yeah, they don't matter enough. Um, that one. I want to impress them so that I will feel better. That that question doesn't haunt your brain. You walk into a room and now you're 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 able to do the things that Paul said when he said, "Is there any?" encouragement and belonging to Christ, then go into a room and and seek to love others as opposed to trying to get others to love you. That happens when we clean the inside. And slowly but surely, we'll see the outside begin to get cleaned. And along with that, we will be a lot less repulsive to the people around us. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we can go about our day. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful, wonderful truth that is the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us. That incredibly difficult process of of really understanding and, and just practically embracing the idea that we are loved by you in a way that begins to change the way that we live our lives, that is my prayer for everyone in this room, that we would begin to more and more and more give the weight that we should to your opinion of us. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to rest and trust in the fact that we are saved and loved dearly and deeply by you because of your grace. And I pray that as a result, people would be drawn to you. People would be drawn to you by your church as opposed to being repelled from you by your church. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen.